Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of John, John chapter 20. We are going to continue our celebration of the resurrection this morning as we study these verses, study what happened with Mary Magdalene. But before we do that, we need to get some context. And we're going to use the other Gospels to give us that context. But we're going to celebrate the resurrection. Last week we looked at the reason for Easter, the reason for the glory of Easter is because we have a verifiable, indisputable death. Jesus died. We have the reality of Easter that there is an indisputable, verifiable bodily resurrection. He is alive. And our response, we looked briefly last week at our response, an intelligent, transformational belief. Just as um, our brother Marty said this morning, we do not have a blind faith. We have a faith that follows evidence. Now, yes, we cannot see God, so that's where the faith of following the evidence to what you believe comes in. But we absolutely have evidence. When people decide, I don't want to follow Jesus, as our brother said, it was so, so well said. People better not walk away from Jesus in our midst because they think there's no reason to believe in him. There's no intellectual reason. There's no, there's no real verifiable reason. There's no evidential reason. Now they should walk away saying, you know what, there's absolute reason to believe that, and I think that the reason is profound and huge. I just don't want to believe it morally. I want to walk away because I want to do what this book tells me I'm not allowed to do. If Jesus has not been raised, then nothing matters. 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus has not been raised, if he has not been raised from the dead, nothing matters. But if Jesus has been raised from the dead, then nothing else matters. He is alive, and everything that we do in our lives is going to be done through the lens of his death and his resurrection. What does it change? What does the resurrection change? It changes everything. But what John is going to do is he's going to give us four very strategic post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Four very strategic post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, and each one of those is going to answer very, very carefully this question. What does the resurrection change? John's going to be very purposeful, very, very specific. In fact, his whole gospel is laid out this way. You remember he said, there are many signs and wonders that Jesus performed and all of those signs and wonders couldn't even fill all the pages of every single book that's been written or ever will be written. He has performed so much. But I have chosen these specifically so that you may believe and by believing you'd have life in his name. He chose specific signs that Jesus accomplished, that Jesus performed. And how many signs did he, did he pick? He picked seven. Seven signs out of the thousands that Jesus accomplished. He picked changing the water into wine, healing the royal official son, healing the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, healing the man born blind, and raising Lazarus from the dead. Seven signs. And the beginning of John's gospel is really familiar to us, right? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. In the beginning. I mean, John wants us to hear Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How many days did God use to make the heavens and the earth? It was a, it's a six-day creation process, and on the seventh, he rests, and that is a seven-day week. 
Seven days in the beginning God created. Seven signs in the beginning was the word. I think what John is trying to tell us is there is a new creation happening through the work of Jesus. He's going to change the day. We're moving from worshiping on Sabbath to worshiping on Sunday. Why? Seven days, seven signs. In the beginning, in the beginning. Creation account, new creation account. Because if Jesus has been raised, everything changes and nothing else matters. So, let's read these verses and we'll see the new creation work happening right before our very eyes. John chapter 20, verse 1. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together. The other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. So Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered. He saw and believed, because as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. And that's where we stopped last week. But, verse 11, Mary, Mary Magdalene was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means my teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Father, we're so grateful that Mary did exactly what you commanded her to do. She went and she reported this news, and, and it spread. And that's why we're celebrating today. We have that news written down for us. God, there are so many treasures in this text. So many different implications that just jump off the page. And God, your spirit knows exactly what implication each person in this room needs to hear, needs to see, needs to be impacted by. So Father, we, we ask that you would be pleased through the preaching of your word for your spirit to take your word and apply it to every single heart that's here. 
to encourage, to exhort, to rebuke, to challenge, to comfort, to care. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We pray in the name of Christ, our risen Savior. Amen. Before we dive into these specific verses this morning, I want to do a harmonizing of the Gospels. Uh, We didn't get to do this last week. Last week we studied uh, John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, and we looked at that in depth. That was last week. I want to look at those verses again, but using the rest of the Gospels to harmonize what happened. We'll do this very quickly because we need to get through the other verses that are here. But if you tie all of the four Gospels up together, it shows you that there are two groups of women that are preparing to go to the tomb. When Jesus dies on Friday, there's two groups of women. One is in Luke 23, and they prepare spices on Friday evening before the Sabbath starts. So they prepare the spices Friday evening before the Sabbath. The other group is in Mark 16, and they purchase spices after the Sabbath has ended. So Saturday night, when the sun goes down, Sabbath is over, they buy them. So a group prepares, a group purchases And they both come to the tomb very early on Sunday morning. Matthew uh, chapter 28 tells us Mary, Magdalene, Mary, the other Mary. A bunch of Marys are hanging out. We have Joanna. We have uh, Salome. We have a bunch of different people that are there at the tomb. And we're told the specific day, all Gospels tell us, it was the first day of the week. Again, Jews don't name their days. They number their days. First day, second day, third day. Seventh day, God rested. First day, if it's seventh day, God rested. It's Saturday. First day is Sunday. My question is, time out, why did God pick Sunday to be the day that Jesus would be raised from the dead? Why didn't he have Jesus die on Thursday and raise Jesus from the dead on Sabbath, on a high holy day? I think the reality that John's trying to tell us in his gospel is there's a new day entering. This is the Lord's day. The Sabbath is over. This is the Lord's day. We have a new day to celebrate, a new day to worship, because a new day is dawning in which the the new creation is coming to pass. Douglas O'Donnell says it this way, How interesting that God did not select the Sabbath, Israel's holy day, as the resurrection day. Instead, he chose the next day. He chose the next day to be the new holy day. He chose Sunday to be the day that we worship his son, the Lord's day. Perhaps he chose a new day because a new era was breaking into world history. A permanent cavity was torn in the cosmos to create an eternal eighth day of rest and rejoicing for all who rest and rejoice in Jesus. So they come on Sunday to anoint the body. And as they do, Mark tells us that the women talk to each other and they say, who's going to roll the stone away? We haven't really even thought this through. We're just despairing, depressed, sorrowful, everything's numb, not thinking clearly, who's going to roll away the stone? Uh, They don't even talk about the guards. What are we going to do with the guards? Sealed. What are we going to do? They don't talk about anything, but it's okay because God's got this. God's going to send an earthquake and an angel. An earthquake and an angel is going to take care of all their problems. Very interesting. An earthquake marked the Savior's death. When he died, 3 o'clock on Friday, earthquake happens. Earthquake marks the Savior's new life, the resurrection of Christ. So an earthquake is going to help with this, but the angel is going to be the one that rolls the the stone away. Matthew tells us that these angels have the appearance of lightning. Their clothing is white as snow. They're so terrifying to behold 
that the Roman soldiers shake, Matthew tells us, and become like dead men. They faint. They fall over like dead men. Now, we read that. We have the flannel graph. Remember, remember flannel graphs where you would take the Roman soldier standing up, has a spear and a, a shield, and then you'd say, and they shook and became like, and you'd put the new one on, and they're falling on, lying down on the ground. Roman soldiers are not to be messed with, right? They're, they're built by their very nature of being a Roman soldier. They're built to brawl. These guys just think Navy SEALs, not mall security cops. Not, no disrespect to mall security cops, but think Navy SEALs. And they see an angel, and they fall like dead men. They're sent to guard the tomb from human opposition, and they had no idea that they were going to be facing divine, supernatural power against them. They're thinking, we got this, a couple swords, we'll take care of it. There's such beautiful irony in this. They are there to guard a dead man. They fall like dead men when the dead man that they were sent to guard rises from the dead. And the angels show up, they scare the Roman soldiers, and then they comfort the women. And they comfort the women with their line that just, if you're an angel, the first thing that you have to know in angel class is whenever you see somebody, just say, do not be afraid, right? That's the first line that you have to memorize. So they show up and they say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. But here's where the story changes. John informs us that before these angels show up and start speaking to the women, you remember what they say in Matthew 28, don't be afraid. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen just as he said. Uh, see the place where he's lying and go tell his disciples that, they, that he's going to meet them ahead in Galilee. All of that information uh, in Matthew 28, Luke 23, 24, uh, and Mark 16, all of those three speeches that we hear from the angels, Mary did not hear. Mary Magdalene did not hear. So if we harmonize the gospel records together, the women go to the tomb. Mary Magdalene goes and sees that the stone's been rolled away. She looks in and she goes, the body's gone. And she takes off. I'm going to go tell Peter and John. It's interesting to note that Peter and John are together. We don't know how, why, but they're hanging out together. She goes away. While she's gone, the other women are standing there and the angels speak. The angels are there. They talk to them. But Mary has not heard this angelic announcement. If, if you think that she has heard this, he's not here, he's risen, just as he said, come see the place where he's laid, he's going to go ahead of you to Galilee. If you think that she's heard that, none of this makes sense. She's left, she's going to come back, the women are gone, Peter and John are going to come with her, and then Peter and John are going to leave, and she's going to be left all alone. So that's a little bit of the background, a little harmonization of the Gospels. Early in the morning, a bunch of women show up at the tomb. They find that the stone's been rolled away. Mary Magdalene leads out by going, uh, where's the body? Um, I'm going to go tell, they, they stole, his body's gone. They stole his body. I'm going to go tell Peter and John to tell the other disciples. She goes away. When she's gone, the other women hear, the angels speak. Uh, there's an angelic announcement. They leave in joy and fear and trembling and awe. They run away. Peter and John run back. So now it's just Peter and John. They see they run away. Mary Magdalene comes back. Um, she's all alone. Pick it up in verse 11. Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. So all of this has happened. 
And she's weeping. Why? Because he's not there. She can't figure out what's happening. She has not heard the announcement. He has risen, just as he said, come see where he's lying, and then go ahead to, to Galilee. He's going to be there. So she weeps. She looks into the tomb. Maybe I, maybe I misunderstood. Maybe Peter and John got it wrong. But now, when she looks into the tomb, she sees two angels in white sitting at the head and at the foot where Jesus had been lying. Mark tells us that they look like young men. Maybe just in a, a barrage of tears. I don't know if you guys have done that. Where, For me, it happens most often with music. It's happened a couple times with phone calls. Where I'll, be, I'll, I'll have my earbud in and I'll be talking, my Bluetooth will be talking on the phone as I'm driving and somebody will tell me news that levels me. And I just start weeping and I have to pull over to the side of the road because I cannot see clearly. Or songs, you hear a song and it just starts getting to you and you've got to pull over to the side of the road because you can't even see clearly. I think she's in that state. Because notice they do not say to her their opening classic angelic line. This is the one that they practice all the time, but they don't have to say this to her. They don't say, do not be afraid. They ask her, verse 13, why are you weeping? This is amazing. To the rest of the women, all they said was, don't be afraid. You're seeking the living among the dead. He's not here. He's risen, just as he said. Come see where he was lying, and then go tell his disciples. There's no need to weep. We're, we're done. Let's celebrate. But here, there's no announcement. The angels have a dialogue. They ask, why are you weeping? And she answers, she speaks to them. Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. She had not heard that he was risen. And so she's weeping. Then in verse 14, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but did not know it was Jesus. I just would love to know what happens here. I would love to know what happens here. Sanctified imagination. She's weeping. She's speaking to the angels. The angels are speaking to her. Something happens, and I don't know what it is. I don't know if in, in my mind I see an angel kind of like looking to the side of her and you know, gesturing, go over there, look behind you. Maybe Jesus clears his throat. A little <clears throat> over here. Maybe she feels his presence. You've, you've been there before, right? Where you kind of feel like somebody's there. Oh, yeah, here they are. Maybe she hears his sandals scraping the ground. Whatever it is, she turns, she sees Jesus. This is you can mark this in your Bible. This is the first resurrection appearance of Christ. The very first time that Jesus has shown himself alive to anyone, it's to her by herself. But she doesn't recognize him. In fact, she thinks he's the gardener. Why doesn't she recognize him? This resurrection body that Jesus has is very strange. It has the marks of death on it. You can see the prince in his hands and on his head and in his side and his feet. But yet the body's never going to die. The body can pass through walls. It can pass through locked doors. It can pass right through grave clothes. But it can eat. 
His body eats food and drinks. You say, okay, explain how this works. And I would tell you, I just did. <laughs> I just did. And you say, that's not very good. And I say, I know. I've never seen a resurrection body. I don't know how it works, but I know that it works. And it works this way. Jesus speaks. Verse 15, woman, why are you weeping? Same question the angels asked, but he asks another question. Whom are you seeking? Who are you looking for? D.A. Carson says that this question is an invitation of our Savior, by our Savior, to widen her horizons and to recognize that grand as her devotion to him was, her estimation of him was still far too small. Mary, who, who do you seek? Woman, who do you seek? And her answer is, I seek the body of my Savior. Sir, middle of verse 15, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Tell me where his body is. I'll take him away. I, I'm not looking for a resurrected body. I'm looking for a dead body. And notice her answer to this question. She is prepared to carry away the body of Jesus, a full-grown man, along with 75 to 100 pounds of spices, not including the weight of the linen wrappings. She's just going to pick him up and walk off with him. Where, how is she going to do that by herself? I don't know. Where is she going to take him to? She doesn't say. She's in a place of deep sorrow. She just wants to see that body again. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, calls her by name. And the sound of his voice, the tender voice of the one that you love, who you know has love for you, speaks. Mary. She turns and says to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Literally, it means my teacher. It's possessive. This is my teacher. Mary. Just with one word, calling her by name, she recognizes him. She couldn't recognize him bodily, physically. She couldn't recognize him when he spoke. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? She recognizes him when he speaks her name. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that's John telling us exactly the application of John chapter 10. When Jesus said, my sheep, I'm the good shepherd and my sheep hear my voice and I call my sheep by name and they know my voice. When they hear me call them by name, they know it's me. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. So she turns and in her joy, my teacher, it's you, you're alive. And she runs and she grabs him and she clings to him. The, the tightest hug that she's probably ever given anyone. I thought we had lost you forever. You were dead. I saw you. How is this possible? So many questions, but all she does is wrap her arms around her Savior, and she does not want to let go. Now, Jesus says something, verse 17, that's really difficult, especially if you have the old King James Version. Old King James Version in the Bible just says, stop touching me, which that's wrong on a whole number of levels. Number one, it's incredibly harsh, and this is not a harsh statement. Number two, um, it does not convey at all the meaning of what Jesus is trying to say. And number three, we have a problem biblically because in just a couple verses, he's going to tell Thomas, please touch me. Come touch me. So touching him is not wrong. That's not an immoral thing. You can't, it's not sinful or wrong to touch his body. So stop touching me is not the right 
verse, or literally in, in King James, it's touch me not. That's not what Jesus is saying. My Bible says, stop clinging to me. It's a little bit better. It's the idea of holding on so tightly and you never want to let go. That's the idea. Stop clinging to me and hold on to me so tightly that you'll never let go. Why does he say that? What is he trying to convey? Well, he tells us the reason. Stop clinging to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father. You say, well, once again, that doesn't help. Like, what does that mean? Don't cling to me because I haven't ascended yet. I think it means a couple things. Number one, remember in the upper room, Jesus had said to his disciples, I'm going away, and where I go, you can't come with me, but I'm coming back again, and when I come, I'm going to take you to be with me forever. Mary knows those words. Mary has those words ringing in her head. And so when she sees Jesus, she puts together, okay, wait a second. You told us you were leaving and we couldn't follow you, but you were coming back and we could be with you forever. You left us. We didn't follow you. You're back. You're with us. You're never going to leave again. I think Jesus is saying, part of what he's saying is, no, no, I haven't done the whole thing yet. I have not gone back. When I told you I'm going away, it wasn't just dying it was dying, rising from the dead, and going back to heaven, and then I'm coming back. So the work isn't done yet. You say, well, that, that's kind of strange, and I don't know why that matters. Here's why it matters. He had not yet ascended to the Father and sat down at the Father's right hand, all of which means this is not the second coming to consecrate the new creation. This is the resurrection appearance that identifies the inauguration of the new creation. So new creation hasn't completely happened yet, but it's coming. And now we have a proven, verifiable, we know Jesus died, Jesus rose from the dead, he's going to go and ascend to, to be at his father's right hand, he's coming again in power to restore all things. We know that's happening now. It's like an engagement period. Jesus is saying to Mary, in, in essence, we're not, this isn't the wedding day. We, we're not here at the wedding day where the new creation happens, where the restoration is finally complete and the consummation happens, we're not there. This is engagement, and I need to go. I need to leave. Engagement, that period of engagement is incredibly exciting and incredibly frustrating, and that's what Mary's feeling right now. Wait, wait, why, why do you have to leave again? We, we thought you were gone for good. And Jesus is saying, no, no, I have, I have work still to do. I'm going to be that great high priest that's going to be at the right hand of the Father, that's going to plead for you and intercede for you and bring you safely home. But I think this is the second thing Jesus is saying to her. When I ascend, and he told his disciples this, it's good that I leave you. It's better that I leave because then I can send my spirit and he'll be with you and I will be with you forever. So I think what Jesus is saying is, if you cling to me and you don't let me leave, then I cannot be with you forever. But when I ascend, my spirit will be sent to be with you always. So Mary, don't cling to me so tightly because when I go away, I'm going to be with you forever. You're not losing me. You're not losing me. I remember when the special edition of Star Wars came out, when the, the original trilogy was redone. There's a poster. I actually have the poster. And the poster says, may the force be with you. And you know what it's supposed to say, right? May the force be with you always. And this said, may the force be with you for two weeks only. <laughs> like, it's just a special event, but it's going to be gone. But it's going to be powerful, but then it's out of here. I think what Jesus is saying is, I'm leaving, but I'm going to be with you always. 
This isn't just, you, you have me for three hours here and then I'm gone, or you have me for 40 days and then I'm gone. When I leave, I'm with you always. What Jesus is saying, you could put in that section, stop clinging to me, I've not yet ascended to my Father. He's saying, Mary, this isn't our last goodbye. You're, you're holding on to me as if this is it, but it's not our last goodbye. We, we are going to see each other yet again. Augustine says it this way, Jesus ascended from before our eyes and we turned back grieving only to find that you were right there in our hearts. Mary, I'm not leaving. I'm leaving, but I'm not leaving. I'm going to go away, but I'm going to be with you forever. He says, but you need to go. You need to go. Verse 17, stop clinging to me. I've not yet ascended to the Father, but you go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. And she does that. This is amazing. She is the first person to see the resurrected Christ. And she sees him alone. She sees him by herself. Why? There's something so powerful about this. Luke chapter 8 tells us who Mary Magdalene was. She was a demon-possessed woman, seven demons that were exercised from her by the Savior. Tradition tells us that she was a prostitute, but that's nowhere in the Bible, so I don't think that that's true. So we have Mary, a woman, ex-demon-possessed, and Jesus shows up to her first. Why her? Why not Jesus' mother? Why her first? Why not Peter and John? They were there. Why her first and alone? There's a myriad of reasons why. We talked about one of them last week. If John wanted to make up this story for us to believe in a false thing, this is not real. Jesus was not truly raised from the dead, but I want you to believe that he was. He would never have placed a woman as the first eyewitness to the resurrected Christ. Why? Long before the suffrage movement, long before equal rights amendment, long before those things, this is a day and age in which a woman's testimony carries absolutely no weight. It's not even admissible in a court of law. If a woman saw it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything to us. So what Jesus is saying, when he speaks to her, first of all, John is telling us, I'm not making this up. If I wanted to make up a story for Jewish people to believe, I wouldn't have included her as the first eyewitness. But number two, he's telling us, he's elevating the dignity of women. He's elevating. There is just a huge, I mean, there's, it's always been a movement for, um, you know, even in today's society, there's a label of evangelical feminism. Um, it doesn't get the Bible completely right. The reality is you don't need evangelical feminism to help dignify women. You just need to do what the Bible says and live out what the Bible clearly teaches. Christianity, according to the Bible alone, is the only legitimate women's liberation movement. Everything else is, is half-truths, quarter-truths, tiny percent truths. Every single place that the Bible goes, every place that the Bible goes into countries and, and pockets of the world where women still feel like they're in this first century uh, Judaism and um, completely looked down upon, testimony doesn't count. Every place where Christianity goes, women are elevated. 
They're dignified. And so Jesus is choosing a woman, not a man, to go speak to. He chooses an ex-demon-possessed individual, not some pillar of the community to speak to. He chooses one of the uh, supporting cast members, not the leader of the movement. Why? It does not matter your background, your pedigree, anything. You can be used by God in amazing ways if you will simply trust him, follow him, and do what he tells you. And that's what happens. Go and tell my brethren, I ascend to my father and your father, my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came, verse 18, announcing to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. She, just, she does exactly what Jesus tells her to do. What does the resurrection change? It changes everything changes everything. But remember, four specific, strategic, post-resurrection appearances of Jesus to people that John's going to give us. This is the first one. And John wants us to see very clearly that this changes our relationship with God, with Jesus, God the Father, God the Son, and with other people, with other believers. Look at what Jesus said. We, we have to dive into verse 17. Stop clinging to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. What does the resurrection change? It changes our relationship, number one, with God the Father. God the Father. Jesus says he is my God and your God. He is my Father and your Father. He's our God. We are in a covenant relationship with God, a mutual belonging to one another. Whereas we once had a judge as a God to fear, rightfully so, because we had sinned and offended him, now he has paid the penalty through the sacrifice of his son. That sacrifice was good and, and acceptable in his sight. That's why he raises Jesus from the dead. So now the God that we once feared, we can simply enjoy. We are in a covenant relationship with God where we just have blessing. Remember, we talked about that. We no longer have a curse to fear. We just have blessing to enjoy. He's our God, but he's not just our God. He's our father. He's our father. We are fully embraced by God as adopted sons and daughters. This is Galatians 3. This is everything we studied on Good Friday. Because of the, the work that Jesus did in taking the curse away and giving us blessing, we have been adopted and called sons and daughters. We're not just slaves. Remember, Jesus said, no longer do I call you slaves. I call you friend. I call you friend. And we're not just friends, we're actually a part of the family. We are full family members. That's because of the resurrection. You have a father and you have a God who you have no need to fear anymore. Perfect reconciliation, perfect relationship with God as your God and God as your father. So it changes our relationship with God, the Father. Number two, it changes our relationship with God, the Son. Notice how Jesus says, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my, what, what does he say? Go to my brethren. This is another first in this account. We have the first resurrection appearance of Jesus Christ, and it's to Mary Magdalene. And we also have the very first time that Jesus ever calls his disciples my brethren, my brothers. Why? Because everything's changed. The resurrection has changed everything. He once called them servants. He once called them disciples. He once called them friends. But now he calls them 
brothers. Go speak to my brothers. There is so much. That one word is a sermon in and of itself. But listen to what Jesus could have said and what you and I would have said. Go and talk to those cowards. Go and remind those losers. Go and tell those failures. Go and speak to those sinners. Go and talk to those dopes. But he says, go and speak to my brothers. J.C. Ryle says, this is something deeply touching in these simple words, my brethren. They deserve a thousand other thoughts, weak, frail, erring as the disciples were. Jesus still cares for them and calls them brothers. Much as they had come short of their profession, sadly, as they had yielded to the fear of man, they are still his brothers. Glorious as he was in himself, a conqueror over death and hell and the grave, the Son of God is still meek and lowly of heart, and he calls his disciples brothers. Let us turn from this passage with comfortable thoughts if we know anything of true religion. Let us see in the words of Jesus an encouragement to trust and not be afraid. Our Savior is the one who never forgets his people. He pities their infirmities. He does not despise them. He knows their weaknesses, yet he does not cast them away. Our great high priest is also our elder brother. That's why Hebrews chapter 2, which we studied on Wednesday, Verse 11 says he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Why? Because verse 17 of Hebrews chapter 2, he was made like his brothers in everything so that he could come to be the great high priest. He's not ashamed to call his, his loser, coward friends brothers. And his love for you and me is no different. His love for you and for me is no different. We are sons of the Father and therefore, if Jesus is also the Son of the Father, then we are brothers to Christ. He is our elder brother, and we get to inherit what he inherits. We share, Isaiah 53 tells us, we share in the spoil with what Jesus won. So what does the resurrection change? It changes our relationship with God the Father. It changes our relationship with God the Son. Now we have a high priest. We get to call him brother, and we're a part of the family. He calls us brothers. But lastly, what does the resurrection change? It changes our relationship with other believers. It changes our relationship with other believers. Our relationship with each other is forever changed because of the resurrection. There is a direct consequence of God's redeeming work. We now are family because God the Father is our Father. God the Son is our brother then we are brothers and sisters. We are family. We all share the same paternity in that God is our Father. We all share in the same bloodline that flows from the veins of our elder brother, Jesus Christ. And if this is true, and it is, we have a whole host of implications. Gossip is profoundly inappropriate. Spurious accusations are unacceptable because they jeopardize family unity. Clicks. Well, we like hanging out, but we don't want to hang out with you. How dare we be involved in dividing what Jesus died to unify? Any sin that we commit against one another is intolerable because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we must fight against division. We must fight for unity. We've been reading that in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Now that we are together... 
the, the younger men and women should speak to the older men and women as if they were speaking to their mom or the, to their dad. Why? Because we're all family. We're a family. We must serve each other, submit to each other, love each other, forbear with each other, protect each other, reconcile with each other. So my question is, how are you fighting to love the people in this church? How are you fighting for unity and fighting against division? The resurrection changes our relationship with one another. It changes our relationship with God because God becomes our father. It changes our relationship with Jesus because he becomes our elder brother. And it changes our relationship with fellow Christians because they are now our family. No wonder the resurrection of Jesus is the best news in the universe. What was Mary looking for? She was looking for a dead body. What did God have for her? A risen Lord. As we wrap up this section, I think it would be a good question to ask, whom do you seek? What are you looking for? Mary went to the tomb looking for something, and that's why Jesus says, what are you looking for? What are you looking for? Maybe you are looking for satisfaction in a dream, in a hope that you feel has died. God has a living Lord for you to cherish and treasure and to satisfy your soul for all eternity. Maybe you're looking to a job to satisfy you. Maybe you're looking to a relationship to satisfy you. Whatever you're looking for, you can stop your searching today if you have seen the Lord. She says, I've seen the Lord. That's it. My search is over. I've seen the Lord. He's all that I need. He's all satisfying. I can stop my search. And then you can be satisfied with him so much so that you go and tell the brethren, right? You go and tell other people, I've seen the Lord. Mary was looking for a dead martyr. God gave her a risen Savior. Remember Jesus' question. It's not, what are you looking for? It's, whom do you seek? All the what's, it's not what are you looking for, it's whom do you seek. All the what's in this world combined will never satisfy your soul. All the what's put together will never satisfy. It's who. Satisfaction is only found in a who, and his name is Jesus. Father, we thank you for the resurrection appearance to Mary and that John was so clear in the way that he wrote to teach us so much. And this morning, again, just barely skimming the surface of what is in this text. God, we are blown away by your kindness towards us in that while we were yet sinners and while you were simply our judge, you in grace sent Jesus to win for us reconciliation, redemption, adoption, now we get to call you our Father, and we don't fear future wrath, future judgment for our sins, because that has all been finished at the cross. And now we get to enjoy a reconciled relationship with you as our Abba, as our Father. We're blown away by that, and the implications of that we'll truly never even know in this lifetime. We'll be learning it in the next. But for now, Father, we, we thank you. We say thank you because you have done the work to make yourself our Father in love and no longer our judge. Jesus, you are our great high priest, and you empathize with us because you were one of us. And you call us brothers. You're not ashamed to call messed up failures like us brothers and sisters and family. And if you're not ashamed to do that, then we better not be ashamed to call each other brother and sister and family. We're family, and we need to fight against division and fight for unity because of the resurrection. So may we today, as one people, with one voice, as one family, 
say together to you, to each other, and to our souls, I've seen the Lord. My heart is satisfied by a who. All the what's of this life put together will never satisfy, but I've seen the Lord.